This is episode 56 of the Just Get Started podcast, and my guest today is the founder of the Institute of Global Happiness, Neil Pasricha. Let's get it started. Hey gang, and welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey. Excited to have you here for an awesome episode um, where I get a chance to talk with Neil Pasricha, um, who really started off, you know, kind of getting on the map, if you will, with his blog, A Thousand Awesome Things. Um, he's written the book of awesome, The Happiness Equation. Um, he does speeches, you know, for TED and South by Southwest and Google. Um, and he started a podcast last year called Three Books, where he talks with, you know, some really cool folks: Judy Bloom, Chris Anderson, Malcolm Gladwell, um, Adam Grant, um, about you know different books that you know they're reading and stuff like that that they like. So it's really, um, really was a pleasure to have him on. I met him for the first time. He spoke in an event several months back, and it just seemed like we have similar thought process just around happiness and, and kind of our look at the world. Um, so I was really appreciative. I know he's you know doing 50 other things. Um, so the fact that he took some time out of his day to come speak with me and, and share some of his story was really incredible. So um, I think you guys will absolutely enjoy some of the uh, knowledge that he shares on here. So let's jump right in. Without further ado, let's jump into the chat today with Neil Pasricha. Let's get it started. Neil, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I was excited to bring you on. You know, I mentioned for the first time you had uh, spoke at our our company. Um, uh, I guess we'll call it with the Dude Day is what we called it uh, earlier in the year, uh, Dude Solution. So it was really cool for for you to jump on here because I had some extra questions. I wanted you to share your story with other folks that maybe haven't heard it because I think it's a really neat of, of folks that you know what you were doing twenty years ago, twenty five years ago. You're not even close to doing that today, right? You probably had no idea that you were would be doing this today. So. That's where I'd like to start, if you could, maybe, if you could share the story a little bit um, of kind of early on in your career, and, and let's maybe go back to college and just getting out of that. Some of the things that you were doing then, obviously, you you probably didn't think about being an author. Maybe you did about speaking, those type of things. Um, could you start off the story that it seemed like it maybe changed your tone on life with with your first wife and and your friend and kind of how that bubbled up into maybe what you're doing today, how that led you in that direction? Sure. Well, I'm East Indian. And for anyone listening who's like got a background with like parents who are immigrants or sort of an achievement oriented culture, then I was following like the path that I was supposed to, you know, it's like study hard, get good grades, uh, become a doctor. Actually, I didn't do that. But I, you know, at least if you aren't going to become a doctor, do something, you know, become an engineer or a lawyer or some sort of professional, go to a fancy school if you can get a good job, make a lot of money, get married, buy a house, have kids. You won, you won the game of life, okay? However, what happened for me and what happens to a lot of people is life, life happens. Like I was, I had done all that stuff. I was working at Walmart. I'm the director of leadership development. I am uh, happily married. At least I believe I am happily married uh, for two years. We had just bought a house. We're talking about having kids. Um, I got a close group of friends. That sounds like a good sort of thing. That sounds like the life my parents, told me to do. Um, and, I, and I was 28 years old. So this is 10 years ago. And then the span of three weeks, 
the entire house of cards or whatever you call life when before it crumbles, like crumbled. And so uh, my wife told me, I'm not in love with you anymore. I, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know any other way to tell you this other than honestly. So, but this isn't going to work for me. And we've been married two years. And so you can look back cynically and say, well, like, you know, you were only married two years. You didn't have kids. But like, for me, that was like everything. We just bought a house. We were set. We, you know, we were in the relationship for four years. It was like devastating and it was totally shocking. And on top of that, my best friend, uh, who was one of the four people in, in the United States who suffer from mental illness, he, he suddenly took his own life. And, and then we don't talk about suicide enough. And, I, you know, I don't know if you want to go into it, but like suicide rates have never been higher. Suicide check-ins or attempted suicide check-ins have never been higher. Loneliness rates have never been higher. Anxiety rates have never been higher. This is a huge problem, okay? But I lost my best friend and my marriage and my house in the span of like a few days. And, um, you know, when I was growing up, my dad, who was an East Indian immigrant, he would all, and, and they moved to just the side of Toronto, Canada, which is where, where I'm from. He, he always said like, you know, never forget how lucky you are, you know, ne never forget how good you have it. But I was like, oh my God, like he was totally wrong. Like life sucks, life's miserable. I, I don't really have a place to live. I need to, you know, grab a bachelor apartment or something like this is just devastating. But one day in order to cheer myself up and try to put myself in a better mood, I started a blog called 1000awesomethings.com. And you asked for the origin of my career as a writer. It was really just starting this website where every single night I would come home, I would force myself to find one good thing to write about, whether that's like the smell of a bakery's air or you know, walking by, you know, uh, like flipping to the cold side of the pillow in the middle of the night or um, getting called up to the dinner buffet first at a wedding. And so I wrote about these things and then the blog completely took off. It exploded. It got, it hit 50 million visitors. It won the Webby Award for best blog in the world for two years in a row. 10 publishers offered me or 10 literary agents offered me like book deals. Um, it turned into a book called The Book of Awesome. That spawned three sequels, five calendars, two journals, a kid's book. And then eventually, six years after that, I quit my job at Walmart. And now for the last few years, I have been literally spending all my time trying to live this life that I have grown now to essentially preaching about, which is a, a grounded and intentional life where you're really valuing the right things in order to cultivate your own happiness. Because nothing can happen unless you start with happiness at the beginning. Yeah. And I, I absolutely agree with that. And that's, and that's a big part of this podcast. The whole just get started mentality is like, you know, go out there and, and being fulfilled in life and doing things that, you know, you don't have to just go sit in a desk job all day. If you hate it, like go out and find something that, you know, maybe you can do um, and, and to make you happy, make you fulfilled. I want to peel the couple layers of the onion back if I could on some of that one. I, I'm just very curious. Why did, do you remember, like, why did you decide a thousand? You could have picked 10,000. You uh, could have picked 100. You, why, why 1,000? You know what? I actually remember that I thought 1,000 was a small number. Because if you read the newspaper or you go online, like everything these days has like seven zeros at the end of it, right? Like millions of people are affected by the hurricane. Uh, the company's worth billions of dollars. The company, like, it's like 1,000 sounded small, tiny, achievable. And it was only until like four weeks into it that somebody wrote me an email and they were like, hey, buddy. I don't know if you've done the math, but if you're really going to write a thousand essays for a thousand weekdays in a row, 
you're going to have to post a new blog post every single day for four years. Good luck. So actually, it turns out that 1,000 became a very large number for the four years that I was writing it. But it was a number that, this is funny, Brian, because I, 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 I've actually only started realizing this now, 10 years later. 1,000 actually is a really, really important number in life. Do you know why? I know. Uh, I don't. Because, okay, here's why. Because you know what the average lifespan is in the world right now? A thousand um, months. A thousand, thousand months. months. Okay. A thousand months. You're alive for a thousand months. So am I. About. Okay. Now, how many minutes is the average person awake a day for? Um. Geez, what, are there, seven, what are there? What are there? Fourteen hundred forty minutes a day. Is that right? Is that is it? Yes, and you're awake for a thousand of them. Okay. Okay. So you're awake a thousand minutes a day. So I decided that this number of thousand is a very important number because it, it, it helps us quantify the finality in a finite way that life works. These days, everything's endless. You know, there's always another Instagram link to click and Twitter never stops scroll, scrolling and, and, you know, Netflix plays the next movie all the time. I think that the word thousand in my blog, 1,000 awesome things, and in my new podcast, which is all about finding the 1,000 most formative books in the world, that's what I'm doing on my podcast called Three Books. It's like anything that respects the finite time we have on life, we give a little bit more trust because it isn't exhausting our brain to just be endless. I hate the fact that everything in the world now is just never ending. Yeah, that's really that's really interesting. The number of thousand. I, I didn't thought about it that. I appreciate you bringing that up and, uh, and and talking through that a little bit. And you know, I'm curious on from a blog standpoint, right? So you, you obviously wrote that and you said you got a lot of notoriety with it. Did you, you said you got several publishers that reach out. Did you select one of them? Did you go in your own way and kind of do it a little differently? How did you come about actually publishing that into, I think it was called the book of awesome. Is that right? Is, is the first book? Yeah. Um, how, yeah how did so, that come about yeah, publishing I, that? Okay. So basically the way people think it works is that you write a book, you walk in the front door of like penguin publishing and then they print it. Okay. That's actually not the case. The way it really works is no one will ever let you within 100 feet of a publishing building. There's these middlemen, and you got to go through them. And the middlemen are called literary agents. And the way literary agents work is um, their reputation is super important to them. When they go into a publisher building, they have to say, this is great. You should print it. And if they don't, the publisher won't let them come back in. Like they just bring them crap. So the entire reputation of a literary agent rests on bringing the publisher high quality stuff. And because so many more people want to write a book than actually do, the, the middleman role is really important. But who pays for the middleman? You do, the author. The author pays 15% of all advances and all royalties to the literary agent. 15% is a standard rate across the industry. No matter which literary agent you sign with, they will always take 15%. So the challenge, if you're an author or an aspiring author, which many people are, 2 million books are written in the US every year, a small fraction of those are actually published. If you are an author or an aspiring author, the goal is not to find the publisher. The goal is to find a literary agent. If you get a literary agent, you're not quite guaranteed, but very, very, very likely to get a published book. Once again, their reputation lies on them bringing good stuff gold stuff to the publisher. So they're not going to sign you up unless they actually think they can get the publisher to buy in. 
Now, the next question for aspiring authors is, well, how do you do that? How do you, how do you actually get a literary agent? Well, here's what I say to do. Go to the biggest bookstore you can find near your house, okay? You know, whether that's like a Barnes and Noble or whatever. Walk around the entire bookstore till you can find the three books that are most similar to the book you're writing, okay? Then read the acknowledgments of those books. And in the back of every single book, the author always thanks their literary agent. That's how you find the names. And those are the three people that you should approach with your letter or your book. That's interesting. And have you, with all the books you've written, have you gone through uh, the literary agent and publisher? Because obviously self-publishing is a big thing nowadays. Um, have you all, have you gone through the publisher route though, literary agent for all of them? Yes, I have. Um, I, I, I might not always do that, but I have so far. Um, the advantage of a traditional publisher, see, self-publishing is very popular now because it's like, well, anyone can publish a book. Great. That's good. But can I ask you a question on that one? It's like, well, who's going to do the marketing, right? Right. Who's well, yeah. Distribution. Who's going to make sure it gets into Barnes and Noble and gets listed on Amazon and has a barcode? You know, and so if you're up for doing all of that extra work, hiring a graphic designer for your cover, hiring an editor to make sure that your writing is good, if you're up for doing all that extra work, you should definitely do self-publishing because in exchange for all that extra work, you might have a great head on your hand and you'll get more of the, you'll get more of the money back. But for me, my big passion is the ideas, the thinking, and the writing. I don't want to be bogged down with a million other decisions. The traditional publisher takes all that off my plate. I outsource all that. They have publicity departments. They got PR teams. They got marketing teams. I don't got to do that. And I just walk into the bookstore and it's there. Okay. In exchange for that, they get a way smaller percent of the, of the cut. The average person gets three dollars on a hardcover if you're the author, and a dollar on a paperback. That's like very, very rough, loose math. But that's just like you know, if you do a self-publishing book, maybe you get ten bucks off the book. But in this case, you get a dollar. But you don't have to do all the work. And uh, I, I, on that note too, um, with uh, with some of the different books, obviously you had with Book of Awesome had a couple different you know series, so to speak, with it with the holiday book and yeah. even more awesome and stuff. But some of your yeah. recent books, yeah, with Happiness Equation and then How to Get Back Up. Where, where did those come from? Where did those ideas originate? Were those stories from your life? Just something different you observed? Yeah. Well, here's the thing I think I should say, which is that it's never the idea. The idea, my ideas are no good. Like a thousand awesome things was a terrible idea, writing a list of all the things that you like on a website. Do you know how many people do that? Like millions <laughs> every day. So it is, and I, and, and, and you know, for me, ideas are a dime a dozen. You could come up with, on your walk home, you could come up with 10 business ideas. The question isn't, how do you come up with the idea? For me, the question is, which idea is worth the year of pain and punishment and effort that it's gonna take you to bring it to fruition? And so with the happiness equation, like my wife told me, so I got remarried five years after my divorce to a beautiful woman uh, named Leslie, where we've now been married uh, five years. And um, on the plane home from our honeymoon, she told me she was pregnant. And so I had an idea, which is I want to write a letter to my unborn child on how to live a happy life. And so I wanted to do that so badly that I spent a year writing it, right? And that, that's the book, The Happiness Equation. And as for how to get back up, I really just thought I never quite honored and reflected on my parents' pilgrimage as immigrants to Canada, what that meant for me, what values that created inside me. And so that book is essentially 
that that book is essentially that that sort of reflection on that. So I mean, it's not the ideas. I have probably have so many. I have so many ideas for books. It's which idea is worth the pain and punishment that goes along with it that you can take. Mark Manson, who wrote a famous book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a, an F, I won't swear on your show. Um, he says, you know, I wanted to be a rock star, but when it came to like practicing chords and lugging around amps and like traveling to on a bus, he's like, I was not up for that. So I became a writer because I loved the work of that. I love the pain of like trying to get a good sentence and like responding to someone's snarky Facebook comment. Like I loved that work. So I became a writer. It's about which pain you like better. How did you go about writing as well? Did you like sit in a room for three days with, you know, not talking to anyone? Did you span it over time? Like, how did you go about your writing style um, to, to get the books out? Um, so with a thousand awesome things, I gave myself very clear pressure, which is I had to write one awesome thing every single night before I went to bed. If I didn't, the blog ended. So that was really clear. I got home from work at like five, five thirty six, ordered some takeout. And by midnight, the thing had to be up. So I had a really clear deadline. And so for me, my writing is often about like creating artificial deadlines for myself. So even if you take, I, can, I still do this, by the way, like if you look at my podcast, three books, I have committed to publishing one new chapter of that show for 333 straight lunar cycles on the exact minute of every single new moon and every single full moon, all the way up to 2031, okay? So if I see a full moon coming, or if I see a new moon coming, which by the way, you can easily see because you just look up into the sky, then I'm like, oh, I, I got to finish producing that next episode. And oh, shoot, I need to like write the blog post for that. Like I have created an artificial deadline. Look, if I don't do my podcast, no one, like, you know, nothing happens to the world. Like everything, everyone's going to be okay. But because I've created an artificial deadline in my brain, I then actually do it. Why you actually? It's funny you brought that up because that's a. I was actually going to go there. I have a note. Why a lunar moon? So this is going back to like the why the thousand. Why the lunar moon or full moon? Why was that the publishing cycle? Uh, it's me partly being silly, but partly because I. Uh, and by the way, I don't recommend you do this with your podcast for any podcast because the Apple iTunes like ranking algorithm has no idea what to make of my show because it's like. Why is this one coming out Tuesday at 2.22 a.m.? And the next one's like the following like Friday at 9 p.m., right? So um, uh, I, I basically decided that the Gregorian calendar, which we all use, is no good because we don't even know how many days February has. This, this calendar that we use is only 500 years old. So I'm like, what about the lunar calendar? That calendar's 30,000 years old. And if you want to know like what day it is or what time it is, you look up to the sky and there's a gigantic white circle getting bigger or smaller. And so I thought it would be fun to pin it to something so grounding like that, because I want books, of course, my podcast is called three books. I want books to be grounding and centering and long lasting and sort of eternal. So it had some similar values as my, as my uh, podcast and I also thought it was important because it takes me two weeks to read like for each author. Like I'm interviewing Malcolm Gladwell for my podcast. I interviewed David Sedaris. I interviewed Judy Bloom and Mitch Album. And, and so what I do is I ask them which three books most changed your life. I then read those three books, right? Then I develop questions based on them. Then I interview them. Then I have to produce it, meaning 
you know, the recording has to have like some music coming in and the music going out and I have to record an intro and stuff. And so I then, it takes me the equivalent of a full moon <laughs> turn to do all that work. So I had to make it, it couldn't have been daily. Like it just takes me way longer. So that's why I came up with the lunar calendar. And, and on that, from the, from the podcast standpoint, so, and I really love that three books idea. That's a really cool um, uh, preface, I guess, of like setting up a show and doing it that way. What have you learned? And I won't ask you to pick every, any, you know, from the whole history, but maybe in the last, even, you know, few weeks or a few months or so, is there a certain maybe book that's been mentioned more than any, or is there one you would recommend like to this audience of a lot of folks that again, are trying to maybe go out on their own, maybe it's start a business, maybe it's just getting the best shape of their life. They're trying to kind of get motivated in life, or maybe some are already there, but need that next kick in the pants. Where would you recommend there's a certain book or two that you would pick out um, that would be important for them to maybe check? Well, that's the beauty of three books is that I'm talking to people that are very diverse. So to, to the aspiring business person audience, they might choose uh, I think chapter 19 of my show, which is with Chip Wilson. So Chip is the founder and former CEO of Lululemon, right? So when I talked to him, he told me, you know, to grow that company, it's a multi-billion dollar company. You know, he had every single employee who joined the company read five books, okay? And then, of course, some of the books he chose for uh, my podcast were those. So, like, you know, he, it was like The Psychology of Success by Brian Tracy, like a really old school self-help book which is only available in audio now, at least not how I find it. And I listened to it and it's like, yeah, some of it's cliche, some of it's trite, some of it's simplistic, but it's also, there's some real wisdom there. And here's the CEO of like a gigantic global company saying that's where he kind of, you know, got his brain set in, in the right way. So that, that is a book that really jumps out to me. Um, hilariously enough, Ayn Rand has been chosen by a lot of people. I have a rule on three books, of course, that you can't, I can't have the same book more than once on the top 1000. So, you know, um, Mark Manson, who wrote the subtle art of not giving F, F, um, you know, he picked Atlas Shrugged. And then Adam Grant tried to pick the same book. And I said, you can't pick that. And both of them picked it, I think, for a similar reason, which is that it became formative to them as children, or as young people, you know, kind of the sort of big idea book. But as adults, they grew kind of a little bit more cynical of the viewpoint, but it shaped them in enough of a way that they, it maybe was their first big book or it got them into reading and it showed them that like, it was such a passionate philosophy that they could live their life by in a way. So it's about finding books that shape you. Here's the other thing that comes up a lot in the podcast. Um, everybody has a book that makes them think I can do it. So like David Sedaris, who I don't know um, if you know him or are a fan of him, you know, he is like probably one of the greatest humor writers alive right right now and um one of his formative books most of his form i think all of his form i never heard of before so one of his books is called will you please be quiet please by raymond carver and i said well why'd you pick it and of course he talks about how the fact that raymond carver's writing was so short and so simplistic that david sedaris believed i could be a writer too and so everybody has a, what is that book for you? What is the book that makes you think you can do it? If you want to be an entrepreneur, what's the book that convinces you can be an entrepreneur? If you want to be a writer, what's the book that convinces you can be a writer? And that to me is an interesting question. That's a sort of a sub question of three books. It's what's the one that led you on the path that you're on today? Why did you decide to, uh, and again, this goes back to same thing with like the blog and other stuff. Why, why was a, 
I mean, obviously podcasting is large today, right? We're, we're talking on one. Um, why did you decide to start a, a podcast? And why was you could have, again, you said you have a bunch of ideas. Why was this idea important? Kind of looking through books and, and seeing what books were important to, to certain individuals. Well, I started writing as a child and I lost my fun for it. Um, and then when I got divorced, I found it again. And my blog was pure fun. Pure fun. I mean, pure fun, right? Like I, I didn't have any ads on it. It was just a fun place for me to escape every night. And then as I quit Walmart and as I started kind of leaning into this career, I noticed that everything I was doing was suddenly for money. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't mean for that to happen. It just kind of happened. So like what I'm saying is now I'm writing books for money. Now I'm giving speeches for money. And if I look around, I was like, hey, wait a minute. No, I'm not doing anything just for fun anymore. And it was like a subconscious thought for a long time. I was like, what do I do about this? And I stumbled upon an essay, which I hope you can link to or share with your readers, called The Nature of the Fun by David Foster Wallace. And he wrote, the and David Foster Wallace is famous for writing a book, Infinite Jest. He wrote that after you have commercial success, uh, which I luckily enough had, the instinct inside you is to uh, chase that with more commercial products. Like you want to put out a similar album or a similar piece of art because you finally got the recognition and the praise that you've always been craving. But he says, actually, what you have to remember is the reason you got popular in the first place is because you were just having fun making the thing you were making. So always be having something fun in your life that is just for fun. So my podcast three books, I even declare on the show, it's 100% ad-free, commercial-free, um, you know, sponsor-free, interruption-free, and it always will be forever because I want it to just be a pure fun project. I personally want to read the 1,000 most formative books in the world, and I'm going to spend, and I am spending, 15 years of my life doing it. You know, is there anything you do throughout the day? Because obviously you, you're you pulled in like 20 different directions, right? Um, any habits or routines that are important for you to stick with on a day in and day out basis that kind of make you leveled or grounded? I have a lot of them. Uh, one of them I'll talk about now is something I call untouchable days. So one day a week, I put in my calendar that I'm untouchable, which means that I have my phone off all day, off, not like on silent, I mean off, okay, which is like a really bizarre concept for people now. And um, I uh, have no internet access anywhere, like on my laptop or anything. And it's literally just me. And you have to try to remember, like, when was the last time you had a day like that where nobody could contact you? And I, I mean, including my wife, okay? So she knows I have this one day a week. It took a while to get into the use. For a while, I was like, I'll check any emergencies every hour. But of course, if I did that, then A, there was no emergencies ever. And B, I was then distracted in the ephemera of the internet for the rest of the day. So now I just kind of tell her where I am, you know, like physically. So it's like, if you really need me, I'll be like over at this coffee shop or like I might be walking in this park, whatever. Sounds nuts. But what it does is it gives me one day every week where I have time to reflect. I have time to process. I have time to think. And I have time to make sure that I'm not just doing things right, but I'm in fact doing the right things. And that one day has become so invaluable to me that I've even written an article about it called Why You Need an Untouchable Day Every Week. And it got published in Harvard Business Review. You can link to it, or if you go to hbr.org, you'll find it. And um, 
you asked me what's one system I have to help make sure I'm I'm doing things, everything I want to, and that's one of the systems I have. I have lots more systems if you want to know them, but like that's just one that came to mind. And that maybe down the road we'll do a part two if you're if you're generous enough for your time we'll come out and we'll we'll talk deeper on some stuff. Um, well, one last question for you. Um, with the time we have left, so obviously you've you've learned a ton over your career, and obviously with childhood, a lot of the things you learned from your parents, you mentioned. Is there one piece of advice, and maybe it's two pieces, I don't know, but maybe it's a quote you live by or advice kind of you structure your day around or your life around? Anything in particular you would share with the the listeners kind of as a lasting impression um, of our interview? Don't take advice. <laughs> my, my biggest thing is don't take advice. The problem is advice is just an alibi. When we're asking for advice, we're just looking for someone to confirm for us what we already think. We do very, very little work on discovering to ourselves what we actually think. We do so much work on wondering what everyone else thinks about it. So you want to go to a college, you're like, well, which college should I go to? And everyone tells you which college they went to because they liked it. Or, or they give you their opinion. Well, it's always important to go to a liberal arts school. It's like, definitely do something that can get you a job. Like, everyone's got a different view. When we are looking for advice, we're really looking for an alibi. The real hard work is asking yourself, without anyone's opinion, what do you want to do? And if you can discover that and do that, you will live a richer and a happier life. You know, I call it maybe the courage to be disliked, but actually what it also means is no matter what you do in life, no matter how popular your stuff gets, no matter how successful you are, no matter how much money you make, you will have lived a life by your own values, by your own code, by your own integrity, and you will look back on your life as a success because you know you did what you want. So do we call that non-advice advice, Neil? Is that, is that how we can, we can coin that? Yeah. Uh, my advice is don't take advice. <laughs> there you go. No, that's awesome. I really appreciate it. Well, hey, I know we had a, a short time today, but I, I know we try to pack a lot in. I, I got a lot of the questions I wanted to ask um, out. So I'm glad you, you came on, shared your story, and, and uh, hopefully it was impactful uh, for the listener. So thank you so much for the time today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that episode or have been enjoying others along the way. Um, and if you don't mind, it'll really mean a lot if you guys head over to iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave me a review. Let me know how I'm doing. Um, give me a rating on there. Um, I certainly appreciate that feedback to make this podcast better each and every episode. Um, and please connect with me online. Instagram's probably the best, um, at Brian Andreco. That's B-R-I-A-N-O-N-D-R-A-K-O. Or go ahead and check out my website, brianondraco.com. That's where I house a ton of random crap like the podcast and my CrossFit journey and a variety of other blog articles. Um, and sign up for my newsletter. Be sending a little bit of uh, inspiration each and every week that uh, may be useful for you. So I certainly appreciate guys listening in. Thanks again. I hope you have a phenomenal week and we'll talk soon.